You're listening to the Team Guru Podcast, bringing to life the theory and principles of leadership. Hello and welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. I'm your host, David Frizzell, and in this episode, we're going to make you feel better about not having an MBA. My guest is Alicia Mackay. Alicia, in her own words, has been throwing hand grenades at the establishment articulating in a sometimes brutal fashion how and why MBAs come up short when it comes to preparing leaders for the real world. But Alicia is not just in the business of pointing out shortfalls. She's well and truly in the business of filling the gap with astute observations, powerful concepts, and actionable ideas. If you don't have an MBA, this is the episode for you. I hope you enjoy my chat with Alicia Mackay. Alicia Mackay, welcome to the Team Guru podcast. Thank you for having me, David. It's great to be here. Great to have you. I was was just talking to you offline, Alicia, and I broke one of my rules to have you on the show today. I don't normally record during the day, but you were such a good guest. I had to have you in the New Zealand time zone means that you can't record when I normally record. So listen, you've written a fantastic book. You don't need an MBA. Leadership lessons that cut through the crap. I bet you instantly made a whole bunch of friends when you published this book because there does exist this hint of inadequacy complex amongst those who don't walk around with an NBA in their CV. Did you win a whole bunch of friends? I mean, yes, but I had also made a few friends with my first book because what is the strap line for that? Oh, the strap line for that one. So that book is called From Strategy to Action. And the strap line was how to get shit done in the public sector. So I'd already made a few friends um, at the prospect <laughs> of getting shit done in the public sector. So um, yes, you don't need an MBA. I did make a few friends, but I also, as was sort of intended, attracted a little bit of controversy as well. Not everybody was very friendly. What was really cool, actually, and I'll hunt down his name for the show notes, is there's an, a professor in Perth who runs the MBA program over in WA who loves the book and regularly quotes it in the columns that he writes and in his work. So that was quite validating, but not all MBA professors have been quite so magnanimous. What an emotionally intelligent person he must be to teach the NBA and have the confidence to embrace a book that says you don't need an MBA. That is Impressive. I I would love for you to track down his name because that's an impressive quality. We'll certainly add that to the show notes. Hey, you know, I I read your book and I I got the feeling that it's not the MBA itself that you have within your sites. You you do have some value in an MBA and you even encourage your readers to go and get an MBA if you want. It's more that the MBA represents an old-fashioned paradigm. Tell us about the paradigm that the MBA represents and what it is that you're trying to influence change here. Yeah, thank you for spotting that because you are joining a group actually of interviewers who've actually read the book <laughs> and and have spotted an that an elite group. An elite group, that that's a symbolic grenade that I'm throwing. And I have had a couple of appearances that's been very differently focused. But I think Paradigm's the right word, and if we look at, for a quick history lesson, the history of management and leadership as an academic or professional doctrine where we went, actually, it turns out that making shit happen and leading people in change is actually worth us figuring out. It's not just an innate 
personality trait, we should focus on this. And so that was actually quite late in the piece. Aside from the military, leadership as a doctrine was not really uh, academic fodder until maybe the 70s. Like it just wasn't a big, it wasn't a thing. And so unsurprisingly, the prevailing schools of thought have adapted over those few decades, well, 50 years now. And I think we're on the cusp of another shift, which is the paradigm shift that you don't need an MBA talks about. But essentially, you've got this kind of first iteration of of management and leadership as a doctrine, which is very military-based. It's very much command and control, clarity. You've got to be tough. It's a very misogynistic sort of patriarchal version, but, you know, no surprises there, as was the time. And then as we shifted it sort of into the universities for a wee look from the scholars, it was very much around, okay, well, actually good leadership has a lot to do with good management and good management has a lot to do with controlling the great unwashed. And so what we need are a series of sticks and carrots that will deliver us the results that we need because we're all about results. So this is greed is good era, right? Where we're going, okay, how do we make the most money? And what are the processes that are going to save the most cost and hamstring or keep people, (laughs) bend people over in a contract to get the most favorable conditions? Let's set a range of targets and key performance indicators that if we gerrymander those into exactly the right formation are going to have people behaving in the way that we want. So it's kind of like push-pull, kind of semi-manipulative, great is good version of management science, which I think was what it was overwhelmingly referred to at that point it wasn't so much about leadership fluff but management science and if you look at New Zealand and Australia over that point in time and in particular if you have a look at government you will see that thinking becoming really influential and the reason that it's a a good idea to look at government is because those decisions are public in government and they're not in companies so we kind of got this idea in the late 80s, early 90s, in government in both New Zealand and Australia, where we went, you know what we need to do? We need to run the public service like a business. That's how we're going to deliver value to our taxpayers. So why don't we put everything on contracts, define every task and output, focus on outputs, that's what's going to get us results. We want the right KPIs, we want to focus on cost cutting and lean structures, and this was all the kind of rage. And I mean, you will be shocked to learn that that was quite disastrous actually for the public service across both sides of the ditch because actually there is little resemblance between running a business and providing a public good but that's a whole nother chat. I love the saying that not everything that is profitable is good for society and not everything that is good society is profitable and that always for me is is the bedrock of of what the public service is trying to achieve and not everything the public service does is profitable and therefore should be run like a business. If it was profitable, we wouldn't need the public service because commercial would pick it up for us. If anybody was happy to run a library or a swimming pool, the government would be like, absolutely, mate, go for it. Unfortunately, those kind of social good items aren't very profitable, which is why we need to act as a, as a collective and fund it for each other. But anyway, so we kind of move out of that. That is a whole nother podcast. It is. It really, really is. But so this is your kind of iteration one of management science, and thankfully, over the last couple of decades, we've really put that to bed. I mean, there's still elements of that, but it's a lot more tempered by thoughts around uh, people. What does it take to motivate people? What do we need to be focusing on in our own personal growth and character development 
to be the kind of person that can rally people to a cause, drive change, have vision, set legacy. And so this is where we started getting obsessed, particularly around that kind of dot-com era with who are the men behind the mastery, you know? And so we started idolizing Steve Jobs and comparing leadership traits to presidents. And we started thinking that the magic lay in who the person was. And if we could just bottle that, then we'd get a good leader. And so this is why you, you have this proliferation now of kind of hoops you jump through of psychometric testing and Myers-Briggs and what kind of bird are you and what color is your aura and what is your disc profile and we're just like we're trying to categorize the perfect set of traits and characteristics in a person and there's a real kind of parallel here with storytelling where you've got your kind of character-led story which is very much about the hero's journey and the protagonist and the battles they face and how they change and what they realize. And and cool, you know, that's that's one element. You've got the kind of plot, the plot device, which is all about, you know, your, your old school, you know, Nancy Drew's or Sherlock Holmes or piecing together the puzzle and figuring out what happened and the crime. And it's less about the people and more about the kind of plot lead narrative. But there's a third and lesser known narrative structure for story, whether it's in novels or whether it's in movies. And that's where I think our paradigms around leadership and management are now kind of shifting to echo. And that is called the arena-led narrative. Now, the arena-led narrative doesn't focus on the development of the character as much or the piecing together of the plot, but rather on how the environment drives events and how the environment affects people's lives. So it's this very contextual way of putting a story together. And so you might think of Gilligan's Island or Lost as being examples of stories where we're watching how people respond to what's happening around them. And I think that is the next frontier in leadership and management thinking for us. Now that we're getting over, I'm hoping we're getting over, this idea that if you are good enough, it will be fine. And I think this realization has been hastened by two years of pandemics and you know, 15 years of financial crises and everything else where we've gone, you know, it doesn't matter how good you are. It doesn't matter how smart you are. It doesn't matter how nice you are. If you are not positioned to be able to respond well to things you know nothing about, whether that's artificial intelligence, a new competitor, new legislation, a natural disaster, a global pandemic, if you don't have the ability to operate in that kind of uncertainty, and to make decisions, and to realize that you can base your whole career on expertise, and it can mean nothing tomorrow when an algorithm replaces your job. If you're not ready for that, well, you're not ready for anything. And so that is a very long answer. (laughs) I love your long answer, Alicia. And, and, you know, that point that you made in your book about the types of novels there are, that, that is something that is already embedded deep in my mind, and the parallel between that and the evolution of leadership in our world. You know, the idea that that we started with plot, it was important what we did and what we produced in a parallel to the plot type novel. And then we moved on to character, which is the the evolution to the Steve Jobs sort of hero figures that created these amazing organizations that made a dent in the universe. And then now we've moved on to the arena. And I really embrace that. And it, may, it absolutely rings true for me. But, you know, the other parallel, which is true, and I think it's another layer that you obviously understand, 
is that even in the arena story, think Lost or Gilligan's Island or that time Tom Hanks was left on the island. I can't remember the name of that movie. Castaway. The, the, a castaway. The arena was really important, but we still loved the character. We still got to know the characters. The arena was the main character, but we still understood who Gilligan was and, and all the others, and we still understood the character Tom Hanks played, and we developed an affection for them. So I think in this paradigm of arena-led leadership, character is still important, but we need to move beyond being in love with the character and understand that the character is performing on a stage and it's we need to understand the stage as well. First of all, if you would like to follow me around and more succinctly summarise things I say on a regular basis, that'd be great because that was exceptional. So if you're looking for a job, that would be me. great. <laughs> but um, I love that you've brought this to the fore because what we're always looking for, I think, particularly with new ideas and being a, a rock thrower is we want absolutism all the time. We love binary. We want to be like, you know what's bad? Myers-Briggs. You know what's good? You know, like that's what we want to do. We want to just classify things and move on. That's how we watch the world around us. That's how we judge politics and everything that Bang happens, on. all the events in our community. And wouldn't it be great if life was that simple? But what leaders know is that there is no right answer and nothing is simple. And so, yes... The character development is critical, but here's what I think has shifted. I don't think we see leadership as acting or as a stage in the same way that we used to. And I'm biased because I've just come freshly out of a not an MBA session today. I just had a three-hour session with my current cohort, and we were talking about performance leadership. And I sent them away to talk to each other, and I said, I want you guys to come back and tell me what is a high-performing leader to you? You know, what have you seen what do you think sums them up? And they came back and they all had a very similar kind of list. And they were like, oh, they're just like, you can really connect to them. They don't know everything, but they really trust their teams and they they empower people to be great. And, you know, they're, they're really authentic and humble and inspiring. And so they told me this big list of stuff. And I thought, you know, a decade ago, would we have been describing an excellent leader as someone who's humble and authentic and connects with you? And I'm not sure that we would have. But we're noticing, I reckon, right across on the world stage at the moment, you've got the most respected politicians, uh, Jacinda Ardern, Justin Trudeau, you know, people who are kind and real and authentic and empathetic, not the people who lead with an iron fist. You're watching what's happening in the Russia and Ukraine at the moment. You've got that absolutely viral comparison meme of Putin sitting at the end of a long table on his, by, by himself and the Ukrainian prime minister sitting in the barracks with his soldiers. and. Yeah. You know, this kind of idea that leaders aren't the be-all and end-all anymore. They're not on a stage. They're people like you and me who are doing their best to cope, but they're doing that in a way that kind of empowers everybody else to be great, and they're doing that in a way that's very real. And if you think about Tom Hanks and Castaway, you don't connect with him because you think he's amazing and infallible and perfect. You connect with him because you're like, oh, man, he's having a human struggle that on some level I find familiar. Yeah, I can identify with that. And that's the shift. Do you want team and leadership development programs that actually work? Contact Team Guru today so we can start the conversation. Alicia, fantastic. You know what? The thing I was thinking earlier was 
meeting you and speaking to you is exactly like reading your book. Your, oh, your personality it. is totally aligned with the voice in which you write. When I was reading your book, I found myself reading faster. I sort of imagined you banging it out quickly on a keyboard as if it was like your, you know, the, the last note you were going to write before your city was nuked or something. That was the urgency with which you were trying to share these messages. And I love it. And you're, you know, speaking with you is exactly that experience. Hey, we haven't got a huge amount of time left, to be honest, although we have. No, we've got a while. Now, I want to talk about the five kind of lessons or qualities, things that you feel leaders have to get right in this new paradigm that you've just explained so beautifully. That The five things are how to develop true flexibility, how to make good decisions, how to build powerful systems, how to drive real performance, and how to have meaningful influence. Can you give us a quick line about how those ideas are neglected or ignored in a traditional business education and why they're so important to you and and this new age of leadership that you're leading? Absolutely. I mean, the common thread that ties those five things together is that they're skills that for a long time, I believe, were treated as inherent and they haven't been taught. So what they all have in common is that they are skills that – are enduring, that irrespective of the technology of the day, the popular ideas of the day, the shape of your company, the name of your job title, they're enduring skills that you're always going to need. And they're things that ironically and rather cruelly, you are not going to be taught, at least not before you need them. So that's the kind of, that would be the category I put those five in. But you'll see that in the book, they're presented as kind of a wheel And right in the middle, you've got flexibility that sits in the middle of it all. And quite frankly, I don't care what you call it. You can call it agility or versatility or whatever you like, whatever trendy word. But the idea there is that it is about your capacity to respond as things change because they will. They just will. And so your ability to respond to that requires some real awareness, both of your own shit and how you need to keep a fluid sense of identity and how you show up and of what's happening outside. And that sounds so basic, that to be a leader, you need to know what's going on around you. But you would be staggered at how many people are so overwhelmed in a culture of busy that they don't look up out of their inbox and out of the window often enough to see things coming. And we talk about this. We say, oh, how did Blockbuster not see Netflix coming? Or how did Coda? I mean, these are your cliche ones. And you're like, actually, it's really easy. Like snow melts from the edges. And when you're busy being important... You don't see these things on the horizon, whereas if you had this kind of awareness of just making it part of your job to go, hmm, what's going on? (laughs) Then it would make a tremendous amount of difference. That flexibility stuff is about kind of three main things. It's about the awareness. Do you know yourself? And do you know what's going on out there? It's about agency, which is that when you recognize that in a complex system, almost all of what we need to deal with and respond to is outside of our control, almost all of it. It's very freeing because then you can focus on where you do have agency, which is in your response ability, which is not about shaping the environment or this very old school kind of colonial command and conquer, we'll cut down the forests and build the cities, we'll control our environment kind of way, but more, guys, a lot going on out there and I'm infinitesimal in the grand scheme of things. So how am I going to respond? rather than how am I going to stop it? And it's it's got some really good parallels to kind of risk management, which used to be how do we prevent the threats? And then how do we mitigate the threats? And it's now kind of moved to how will we respond 
when the threats turn up, right? And so you've got this awareness, you've got this kind of paradoxical sense of agency and responsibility, and then you've got just total resilience of being able to go, actually, I don't need to bounce back because there's no before anymore. There's no such thing as before. So what I need to be is an anti-fragile system that I prosper because of disaster, not in spite of it. So every time something turns to shit and my business model is proven to be irrelevant now or I lose half of my staff because I run a hospital business in a pandemic or whatever happens, rather than going, oh, the sky's falling, I go, perfect. I mean, this is my number one piece of advice for leaders to develop resilience. Every time something turns to shit, you say, perfect. Well, that means we get to re-examine all of this. We were so dependent before on international tourism, and that was a weakness. Perfect. Now we get to think about how we add value differently and how we take this shit online, right? And so leaders who have that conversation, there's pretty much nothing they can't survive. It's an incredible mindset shift. And, and, and there's almost, that, that's one of those things, there's two types of people. There are people who, with whom, you know, inside a project, if something changes, they feel deflated that some of their work will now be wasted and, oh, let's just sit down. And that's when we, people have a whinge and we gripe and we whinge about the senior leaders who have made these decisions. And then there are other people who just say, okay, well, that's, that's the reality. And if you're still stuck in the first place where you've got to have a good sit down and a complain every time something changes, you'll find yourself sitting down and having a good complaint pretty regularly now because this is the arena in which we work. All industries, all organizations have changes and things that pop up and there are two ways to respond. And And you've just made a, a very good case for responding in the positive. Or what about making good decisions? What's the key there? And, and was this totally neglected in a traditional education? No, it wasn't, but I'm going to tie these kind of two things together because I love what you've just said about that, um, you know, some people would rather sit around and have a whinge. And, yep, sure, so that's cool. So they're just not going to be the leaders that change society. So that's cool. You can just stay down there. That's fine. We don't need everyone to be a leader, so that's fine. We can deal with that. But in terms of that's not going to work anymore, I think what's an important point there is, you know, every generation thinks the sky is falling. Every generation thinks that the new music is terrible and that the kids have no respect, you know. Socrates was saying this and so we're saying it now and so it's easy to go oh but it's really changing now and so I want to make the point that actually there is no more change than there used to be so things do not change any faster or any more than they ever did and if we look at the last 100 years or the last 200 years we go holy shit actually things have been moving at breakneck pace for some time however change has changed so what is different now is not that we've got more change than before it's that it's really tangled up Right? Everything is very interconnected and everything is very complex. And so it used to be that something would shift and you would deal with that problem. But now in the world, in a globalized, interconnected, super technologically driven world where we've all been all over it, we see what's happening in Ukraine while it's happening. Every decision we make has environmental consequences that they always had, but now we know about them. And so the decisions are harder because now we know the impact we're having on climate change. We can see the butterfly effect of what's happening on the other side of the world because of our extractive capitalism. We understand the social and political consequences in a different way. And so our understanding and visibility of the complexity of our decisions and the complexity of our environment is what makes it harder now. Because it was great when we could just rock on and just be like, oh no, there's heaps of trees, don't worry about it. The poor people don't want any money anyway. Like we just rock on and do that and it was fine, but we can't do that now. And the veil's been torn, we understand it, we can see it, it affects our lives, and so now we have to respond differently, which is kind of that how to make good decisions thing, 
which goes, it's not that we aren't taught how to make decisions. It's just that we used to be taught what it was we should be thinking rather than how it was we should be thinking. So decision-making as a doctrine is actually very, very, very recent, the idea that there is decision science. But I think we used to believe as a leadership paradigm and part of that old version that our value was in what we knew. So that was the kind of experience we'd accumulated in our in our careers. And it was also in a sense of this very kind of mystical good judgment, which was this hilarious kind of self-perpetuating cycle where if you'd been promoted, it must show you've got good judgment because otherwise you wouldn't be promoted. And so therefore you have good judgment and so you can make good decisions. And it was just this very weird kind of Ponzi scheme of, I know a lot about accounting and now I'm the chief financial officer, so I must have good judgment. So I'm going to make accounting decisions. But no one at any point had actually said, hey, so your technical expertise is going to be outdated, you know, two years into your, into your management role. So it's time for us to talk about how we weigh up risk and what process we use to understand the problem that we're trying to solve before we try to solve it and who we should talk to and how we consider alternate options. So if the old way was about the what, the what decisions we made and the new way is about the how, and you, 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 you got to a little bit about that, about that then, but give me the, the crunch of that. What is the lesson about how we make decisions? Uh, that the more important of a decision you make, the less of a chance that there's going to be a right answer. So rather than looking for accuracy, just don't because it doesn't exist. It's not just that what you decide is harder. It's that it's actually kind of irrelevant. There's no such thing as a right answer anymore. You won't find one. And so if the success of your decisions is no longer assessed on the outcomes, what is it assessed on? Well, a good decision is assessed on the process that you use to make it. And so when you go to make a decision, don't worry about what you're going to decide. Worry about how you're going to decide who you're going to talk to, what your most important priorities are, what you're trying to achieve, what your options are, and how you've come to a decision as a team sport together. Very good, Alicia. All right, now let's move on. Building powerful systems. Oh, this is my favourite one. This is my favourite one. I was going to say, it sounds like the most boring one. but Yeah, I know. I'm so glad you've said that because when I developed the curriculum for Not an MBA and we were filming it, there's actually an outtakes video in the curriculum called Systems Shit Me with me complaining into the camera of me going, I hate doing this one. It's too hard. I don't get it. It's fucking boring. And uh, seriously. And so I really stuck with it. And like most things that really trigger us, it's a sign that it's really critical. And now it's my favorite. It is my favorite because systems are so poorly understood we think of them as things we build and things we buy and they're not systems is actually a perspective it's what we see not what we build a systems leader isn't someone that understands technology or figures out how to organize their teams a system leader is someone who looks at a problem and goes hmm i bet you that's a symptom not a problem A systems leader is a detective, a scientist, a big picture zoomer outer who rather than getting grumpy about people or about process, looks at how everything fits together and goes, yeah, if I shift this lever down here, that'll change everybody's lives forever. Why would I bother solving a problem or putting a bandaid on it when I could dissolve the problem by figuring out what's driving it and having, I, I didn't love this module quite like I do until I taught it 
and I watched people go into their lives and interrogate the causes and the assumptions and the effects of of the problems in their life and fix the connection points and fit how the parts fit together, it wasn't until I watched people every week going out there doing that that I went, holy shit, this is the most powerful skill. I should have put it in the middle. Because most people are banging around at work trying to build these best practice silos of subject matter expertise and getting angry that other people don't understand why the thing they know the most about is the most important thing and just being generally frustrated at how shit people are and how broken everything is. Systems leaders go, no, no, everyone's great. Everyone's doing their best. Everyone's trying really hard. So if something's not working, then there's a reason for that and I'm going to go figure out what it is. What's the root cause, not the symptom? There's no such thing as a single crime. So what's driving all of this? Oh, and I've watched people do this now in, um, in Countdown and Woolworths, um, my not an MBA students. I've watched them go out and go, I've got a problem with someone. I've got a problem with the comms department, with a manager, and that can't be it. If they're good people and something's not working, what's the policy or the assumption or the norm? How are we failing people? If we've got asshole managers that people hate, what are we doing wrong about setting people up to be aware and connected? when they move into leadership. What's wrong with our induction? Should we have a coaching requirement for everybody that steps into tier three leadership? How do we fix the system here? I'm watching people do that. I'll just cry tears of joy every week because it is the most effective intervention to the way people think, I think, across all of those leadership modules is what I've come to believe now after teaching this for nine months. And what I'm coming to understand really clearly is the interconnected nature of each of these and their place in the arena. You know, you just talked about making good decisions and how the more complex or important a decision, the less likely there is to be a correct and a real one. And now you're asking us to think about systems and truly understand root cause, not just the things that we get to see on the surface. And I'm seeing how these are all really nicely connected. All right, let's move on to the penultimate skill or understanding, and that is how to drive real performance. (laughs) Yeah. That one's a really funny one because what we think a a high performance leader looks like, or at least what we used to think in the the Steve Jobs era, is people who are like, I work 20 hours a day and I hustle so hard and I've got a time hack and I'm Tim Ferriss and if you have 27 minute meetings instead of 30 minute meetings, you too can be a high performance machine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what a load of shit because, you know, Peter Drucker said something like, the stupidest thing, I'm paraphrasing is doing something efficiently that should not be done at all. And so what I'm arguing in the performance module of this book is that we, if we want people to transition into being really strategic, impactful leaders in their organisations and in their communities, what we want them to be able to do is really cut through the shit, only optimise what really matters and what makes the most impact and make sure that that's being done in the right place and that they've got enough capacity in their own lives to be putting their energy into empowering others and having big ideas and building relationships and doing the stuff that really shifts the dial and making it really bloody easy for everything else to happen. Not working themselves into the ground, not respond. You know, every email you write generates an average of 1.3 emails. <laughs> like, it is a Ponzi scheme, mate. You are just making work for yourself when you sit at your computer. Performance later goes, no, 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 no. There was a study, the CEO study that was done a number of years ago now, and I'm trying to remember the guy that did it. God, you're going to have some show notes on this one, eh? And he followed all the most successful like Fortune 500 chief executives for 13 weeks and tried to understand how do they spend their time? What are they actually doing? 
and they were expecting to see people who, you know, only slept three or four hours a night and ran on a series of supplements. And as it turned out, the most effective high-performance chief executives in that group were the ones who spent more time with their family, worked less, exercised regularly, slept enough, were really discerning about who they met with and how they met with them, cleared the first two hours of their schedule and spent it on strategic business building activities before they got caught into the spin. And it was consistent across the board. The behaviour of the people at the top is not what we think and it's not what makes it into sensational articles online. They're people that live balanced, fulfilling lives where they focus on what they contribute, not what they make. You know what? None of that surprises me. What surprises me is that we do anything differently. What surprises me is that there is still a part of society that glamorizes 16-hour days and emails being sent at 11.30 at night or four in the morning. The fact that that is still okay, that's what bothers me. What you've just described about the most effective CEOs has zero zero surprise points for me because that's they're all the best ways to live life, to have great relationships, to have some balance between – and I know there's a – discussion about the word balance, but who cares? It is balance between your life at work and, and your family and the people you care about, looking after yourself physically through exercise and the things that you eat and stimulating your mind by reading good literature or having some time to do that. And most of all, and this is something that you and I and everyone listening knows the executives do, is they fill their day from the moment they walk in with back-to-back-to-back-to-back-to-back meetings, meeting with any old person And then having zero time to think, zero time to make good strategic decisions, and we wonder why our organizations get bogged down in a quagmire. So I'm not surprised to hear that. I'm just surprised that we still do any of the old stuff. And I look around wondering and hoping to influence in my tiny little way our transition away from busy is good to this life of thinking and balance and and health for our body and mind. I love that one. That That is so important for us as human beings, not just as effective leaders and effective organizations, but for what we do to ourselves as human beings. Fantastic, Alicia. Let's talk about the last one, how to have meaningful influence. And if you could just get this one, imagine if you could sell meaningful influence to people as a, a product that they wear a wristband and all of a sudden they're, they're influential, people would buy that wristband. How do you talk about this one? Yeah. So the gist of this one is it's not about you. And if you really, I mean, this is how I'd sum it all up. If it's the too long didn't read and you don't want to read the book on this, having a lot of influence means it's not about you. So it means when you think of how you're going to change the world, you think in terms of the problems that you solve for others. When you think about how to communicate those ideas and take people with you, you communicate on the basis of what it will do for their lives And when you have real impact beyond you so that your idea takes hold, it's because you let it go and you let other people pick it up, reshape it and take it into the world to mean something else. The leaders that have the most influence are, paradoxically, those who know that it's got nothing to do with them. And so if you think that to have real influence, you need to have the nicest PowerPoint slides and the snazziest suits and the best communication skills, media skills training you could not be more wrong. Just get yourself out of the equation. Think about the change you want to make in the world and the people that you need to grab it, take hold of it and make it real for you and focus on that. And you know what I like about that is it removes leadership influence from the hands of the extroverted, charismatic, 
cliche, public speaky, whatever's, and goes, nah, you don't need to be that to be influential. You just need to be a person who gives a shit and puts others first. I like it, Alicia. Hey, that is fantastic stuff. We've run out of time, but before I say goodbye, tell us quickly about you don't need an MBA program because I'm imagining anyone who's listening to this is hearing an intelligent straight shooter who they might want to hear a little bit more from. So tell us about that program and where we can find info about it. I'd love to. So Not an MBA, and you can go to notanmba.com as an eight-week accelerated leadership program, and it is not for everyone. Let me be very clear. If you've been listening to this podcast and you've gone, she needs an attitude readjustment, or this sounds like a load of shit, then that is a perfectly valid perspective, first of all. And secondly, this is not for you. So I attract a certain kind of people into this program who tend to be navigating a transition towards senior leadership, but they've been ambitious high achievers for a long time. They're tired, they're worn out, they know something's not right, they want to shake shit up, but they cannot quite figure out how to get things over the line at work and how to change their life from being so bloody busy to actually being the kind of leader that they see and that they want to be. And so we do eight weeks. It's intense. We have a bunch of assignments that are only things that immediately change your work and life. There's no theory. There's no lectures. It's all online as a video curriculum. And so the time we spend together each week is purely interactive discussion. I take as small of a role as I can in it because so much of the value comes from people from across Australasia sharing their own experiences and their own reflections on the content with each other. Like I'm just a conduit for that. But it is a really awesome choice if you've been thinking about levelling up and taking the next step into your own business or into a senior leadership role and you're looking at what's out there and you're like, well, this is all shit. It's going to take three years and cost 40 grand. Then non-MBA is a great option for that. So I love it. We have three intakes a year. It's eight weeks long. It's cheap as chips. It's less than four grand for God's sake. And it absolutely changes people's lives. And I can say that without a shred of arrogance because I've watched it happen and it is fucking awesome. Oh, can I say fuck on this podcast? (laughs) Well, I'm going to have to tick the explicit box, but that happened a long time ago in our conversation. (laughs) Hey, Alicia, I have loved chatting to you. I've Chatting to you is as good as reading your book, and I'm guessing you don't have any problems filling spots in that program of yours. Thank you so much for coming on the Team Guru podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. Absolute pleasure. And that was Alicia Mackay. I love her direct energy. There is no sugarcoating things with Alicia. I love the parallel she draws between the history of leadership development and storytelling. We started in plot, we moved to character, and now the new paradigm is grounded in the arena. Her key lessons about flexibility, decisions, systems, performance, and influence are pure gold. There is so much in there that can help us develop a new, cut-through perspective on the way we lead. As always, I'll share the tips and other lessons I took from my conversation with Alicia on the Lessons Learned page for this podcast. You'll find it along with the entire back catalogue of Team Guru podcasts on our website. That's teamswithans.guru slash podcast. Connect with me on Twitter, Facebook, SoundCloud or LinkedIn and join me for the next episode on this, my mission to bring to life the theory and principles of leadership. This is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now.